Good morning, North Wake. If you haven't heard, there was a hazing done to me during the first hour. <laughs> Being the first time preaching here, they decided to let the mic go out about four or five times. So Larry is back from China, and uh, he decided to haze me today. Uh, it's probably also because I'm breaking one of the kind of cardinal rules or expectations for a first-time preacher at Northwake. As you can see, I'm not wearing the sweater vest, okay? My wife actually had a dream, uh, probably better described as a nightmare, this week where I was preaching in a neon bright yellow sweater vest. And she is in the congregation standing up crying, take it off, take it off. And somehow she associates this yellow sweater vest with Rob. I think he has one of those. So he's not here today, so I could poke a little fun at him. Yeah, I got to. I've been married to my wife now for almost 18 years. And we have two children, Hunter, who is 16, and Brooklyn, who's 14. And a few years ago, we realized that we only have a few more years left to really invest in their lives before they have the opportunity to venture out on their own and, and start their own lives. So we sat down and decided that we're going to find things that our kids really enjoy doing and just do those things with them, just to have an opportunity to continue to invest in those precious years that we have with them. So the year before, I had taken my son to his first amusement park. Living in Wake Forest is great because we have three amusement parks within a three-hour drive. We've got Carowinds and Bush Gardens and King's Dominion. And so every year since, we will buy a season pass, and we'll go four, five, sometimes up to six times over the summer and ride roller coasters from sunup to sundown. And on one of our first trips, we go to King's Dominion, and he talks me into going on this ride called the Intimidator. That's right, the Intimidator. Now, I haven't ridden roller coasters in the past 15 years, so I thought I could handle this. But it became very quickly apparent that my aging body could not handle what it once could as a young man. This ride starts out right out of the gate with a 305 climb straight up. And it drops 300 feet straight down at an 85 degree angle. At 94 miles per hour. And then immediately takes this hard right bank where you experience approximately 4 G's of force. Now, why do I know all the facts about this ride? Because I almost blacked out on this ride. I had never, I've boxed before. I've never passed out or blacked out. But my vision began to get smaller and smaller and smaller until it was like looking through the smallest of peepholes. And then my vision came back and I could continue the ride. Now, I was afraid that I would pass out and continue, because this is the beginning of the ride. Continue the rest of the ride, passed out as this limp passenger <laughs> just being tossed back and forth until at the end where the attendant has to wake up this 39-year-old man and say, get off this ride, geezer. <laughs> I also had to defend myself to my teenage son. I'm a man. So I need to explain to him the physics behind such a, an experience so that he would not call me a wimp or make fun of me. Now, this is not the point of my story today. 
On these rides, at these amusement parks, they have signs posted everywhere that say that they are not responsible for any lost items. Because on these rides, you go upside down, you have these jerks back and forth, and you have these zero-gravity experiences where the things in your pocket easily come out and get lost. When you get on the ride, you can see stuff flung all over the place within these fence, and you're not going to get them back. My son had actually lost his cell phone on probably the third or fourth ride we had ridden that day. So I quickly found two things that I didn't want to lose. I had a lot of stuff in my pockets, but my keys and my wallet. And I put those in a particular pocket that I could button up. Okay, put it down here, button it up, it's safe. And throughout the day, I noticed that after every ride, I would just pat that pocket. I'd get off. And I'd pat that pocket to make sure those things that I didn't want to lose were safe. That's what I want to talk with us about today. It's our goal. I want us to take a moment and make sure that our valuables are safe. Today as we examine the lives, our lives in light of scripture, I would hope that we would value the truly valuable and as a result protect those things. This will hopefully not be something that just you and I do today, but will become a habit in our lives like somehow I had trained myself to pat that pocket and make sure those things were safe after riding those ridiculous roller coasters with my teenage son. So with this in mind, let's pray. Father, grant us in the next few moments the ability to focus on you and your kingdom without distraction lift your word high as the primary source of authority in our lives so that we may value Christ supremely may your spirit of wisdom and revelation open the eyes of our hearts so that we may be truly enlightened to see our lives in your world the way you do amen if you will turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 Luke chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 13, we'll be spending most of our time together here this morning. But before we begin, I, I think it would be wise for me to provide a little setting, a little context to the passage today. In chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke, we read, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So here is Jesus, our Savior, Focused, determined, and walking towards the cross. As he is going on his journey, we read that when the crowds were increasing. So these crowds are beginning to follow Jesus. And then in Luke 12, verse 1, beginning of our chapter today, we see, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were trampling over one another. So here's this picture of Jesus walking towards the cross and these crowds beginning to grow. And they're growing so much that they're trampling over one another just to get a chance to hear his teaching. And that's where we pick up in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, that, those crowds of thousands, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man who made me a judge or an arbitrator. 
So in the midst of Jesus teaching these large crowds, this guy interrupts Jesus' teaching to say, Hey, get my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. I don't know about you, but this request seems a little bit out of place. What would drive a person to ask such a thing in this particular context? As we'll quickly learn, only one thing would explain such an awkward request. Greed. You see, this brother is not asking Jesus to examine the facts and determine how much of any of the inheritance should be divided. His concern was not for justice. No, his concern was that Jesus would tell his brother to give him. Now, Rabbis would often be asked questions about family inheritance. But even with this, it just seemed odd. Because he wanted a ruling in his favor, not a fair, proper division of the estate. And that's what greed does. Greed often skews the truth and fights for a ruling in one's favor. In one of the most infamous family inheritance feuds, Leona Helmsley left behind an unusual will after her death in 2007. The billionaire New York City real estate developer had amassed a fortune estimated somewhere between five and eight billion dollars, according to the New York Times. In her will, she requested that the majority of the money be given to charity, including animal welfare programs. And gave other smaller amounts to various relatives. Most shockingly, Helmsley left $12 million to her 8-year-old dog, Trouble. But little, none actually, to two of her grandchildren. Directly specifying in her will that she had, quote, not made any provisions in this will for my grandson Craig or my granddaughter Megan for reasons which are known to them, end quote. At the time of this news, there were so many death threats on this dog trouble that the dog began requiring $100,000 a year of security. Until these two grandchildren began to dispute the will in court. And after a year of dispute, a Manhattan judge reduced the $12 million figure to $2 million and much was given to charity. And the two grandchildren that were specifically left out of the will received $6 million from their grandmother's estate. Even though it was clearly stated in the will that they were to get none of this inheritance. They fought for what was rightfully theirs from their perspective. Just like we have already stated today. Greed often skews the truth and fights for a ruling in our favor. Jesus sees through this request and quickly asks this brother a rhetorical question. He says, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator? Isn't that how you want Jesus to address you, man? Even within that word, there is a rebuke from Jesus. And this is very revealing, this whole 
response from Jesus because he had not come to get involved in worldly legal matters. No, he had come to offer the world eternal salvation. His primary concern was for the eternal kingdom, not worldly matters like inheritance. The reason or the motivation for this brother's request becomes crystal clear when we read the next verse. Verse 15. And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possession. So Jesus uh, seizes this teachable moment provided by this greedy brother, turns his attention to the crowds, and gives them a clear diagnosis of the situation and calls them to be on guard. This man had been motivated by greed or covetousness in the ESV. Greed is the lusting for a greater number of temporal things that goes beyond what God determines is eternally best. It is a material concern for the things of this world at the expense of the eternally valuable. It is an overvaluing of the here and now and an undervaluing of the there and then. The worldly versus the heavenly. Our kingdom versus his kingdom. Notice Jesus' stern warning against covetousness. Take care. It's also translated beware or watch out. This is followed up with a strong command to be on your guard. We get this image of a military soldier in a wartime situation who is consistently and continually aware of his surroundings and that there is an enemy pursuing him. So Jesus warns us. He commands us to be on guard against greed. Why would we need to be on continual guard against greed? As pastor and author Tim Keller wrote, we can't see our own greed. He says, as a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost, he says. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and the people around me. Keller says that greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's MO includes blindness to our own heart. So greed is deceptive and it blinds us but not only is it deceptive and it blinds us I think greed tries to redefine us it tells us that our life is wrapped up in stuff the things that we own if we will just drive this type of car if we'll just live in this neighborhood if we'll just have this type of home If I can just have those pair of shoes that I saw in the window at the mall, then I will be important. Then I will have value. Then I will be happy. But Jesus tells the crowds that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Your identity, who you are as a person, your worth, your significance, and your value are not determined by your stuff. 
It is not determined by the types of stuff you have or how much of it you have. You and I are not defined by possessions. Jesus, just like he did in that crowd before him that day, is taking the opportunity to reorient my thinking and your thinking. Our life is not about our stuff. Remember that question we started with today. Are my valuables safe? Jesus is about to tell a parable that gets at that same question. So let's read, picking up in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? As Jesus often does, he, he tells a parable, a story that they can relate to, to draw them in and illustrate his point. The story is about a farmer who is described as being rich even prior to this new crop coming in. Because it's been such a good year, his existing barns cannot contain the abundant harvest. This honestly sounds like a scenario that could be very realistic for any farmer. So he decides to tear down his barns and build bigger ones. Seems like a reasonable solution to his storage issue. So, what's the big deal? Why would God so strongly condemn the farmer's solution to this particular dilemma? I think if we do a little digging into the text, the reasons will become apparent. Look down in your Bibles in those or up on the screen at those verses and count how many times I or my is used. In nine, excuse me, in three verses, we see it appear nine times. I, 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 my, 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 my. He clearly views himself as the owner of all instead of God. And this serves to only highlight the ingrained self-centeredness in this rich man another clue is found in how he intends to utilize his abundance he plans to eat drink and be merry it is time to live the good life it's party time on the farm instead of seeing his abundance as an opportunity to be a blessing to others he intends to use his abundance for his own pleasures. He can only think of himself. So God's response in declaring him to be a fool makes sense. Instead of loving God and others, he loved himself. Instead of investing in God's kingdom, he invested in his own kingdom. All descriptions of a fool. By show of hands, I really want you guys to respond. I like interaction. Uh, how many of you would be willing to trade me a penny for this $100 bill? Hands are going up pretty quick. 
Okay? Now, I, I structured this question better than any other question in the sermon so that you wouldn't be able to get my money. I said, who would be willing? I didn't say I would make the trade. Okay? <laughs> the only reason someone would not make that trade is that they don't trust me. They think that what I'm holding is actually some form of counterfeit. Because who would not trade something of little value, a penny, for something of exceeding value, a $100 bill? But this is exactly what this farmer did. He did not believe that what God had for him was more valuable than what he already had. He overvalued the things of this world and he undervalued the things in the world to come. And I would argue in a, in a very real way, we are prone to do the same thing. There are times where we don't trust God. What he offers is some form of counterfeit. What he promises is it's not really as valuable as he says it is. It's the only explanation that would make sense. We invest, when we invest in the here and now, in that which has little temporal value, and do not invest in that which has much eternal value, we hold on to our pennies when God offers us something of an infinitely exceeding value in exchange. This is why Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, many sufferings. One commentator writes, Though riches may be enjoyable for the short term, they do not exist in the long term. So Jesus follows up his parable with his main point, verse 21. He says, so is the one who lays up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. This comparison between self and God highlights the point of this parable. Jesus is not condemning wealth or wise planning. He is condemning the use of wealth for one's own personal benefit at the exclusion of seeking God's kingdom and helping out other people. The rich man is not a fool because he is rich. The rich man is a fool because his riches are set aside for himself. I want to be clear on this point because if we're not careful, we can somehow make someone's financial position an indicator of, of how holy they are. Somehow we say, oh, the, the, the poor are on God's, on God's varsity team and the rich are on God's JV team. It doesn't work like that. The fool is a fool because he stores up for self, and the wise are wise before, because they store up for God and others. It's not about how much you have in the bank. It's about how much you have in the bank that is designated for you and you only. 
The practical questions then are, who are your monies in your checking and savings account set aside for? That IRA, that mutual fund, is that for the benefit of you and your family only? What about that garage or even that storage facility? Are those for, set aside for just in case I will need them one day? Or are they set aside for the benefit and use of others? The question is, who are my treasures stored up for? Now there's this interesting phrase that ends this particular verse, rich towards God. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And a helpful definition I found was, being rich towards God, therefore, is the heart being drawn towards God as our riches. Rich towards God means moving towards God as our riches. Rich towards God means counting God greater riches than anything on earth. Rich towards God means using earthly riches to show God how much you value Him. So, how do we practically live in such a way that God is our riches? How do we prevent this tragic story of this rich farmer from becoming our story? I think it's similar to what I had trained myself to do on that roller coaster ride. We need to check the pockets of our lives to see are the right things in those pockets. And if the right things are in that pocket, then those valuables are safe. To do that, let's, let's look down at verses 32 through 34 where I think Jesus provides us, his people, with the foundation by which we combat greed and cultivate a richness towards God. Jesus is trying to help us distinguish the truly valuable so that we will have those treasures secure. Before I do that, I think it's helpful for us to highlight that so far in our passage, we've been, he's been speaking to the brother and to these large crowds as a whole. In verse 22, he turns his attention to his disciples. Okay? He starts speaking to them about not worrying about the things of this world. Not worrying about the clothes that they will wear or the food that they will eat. It says, if he cares for the birds of the air and the lilies of the fair, uh, field, how much more will he care for you who are exceedingly valuable to him? He tells them not to live like the people who are Gentiles and don't know God, that they have a sovereign God who provides for their every need. And when they cast off those worries, when they cast off those anxieties, they are then freed up to fulfill their creative purpose, which is to seek Him and His kingdom. And then we have this tender assurance to the disciples from Jesus in verse 32. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in, he in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What a tender 
affectionate plea to Jesus' disciples. I see three ways in this short passage where Jesus is helping us guard ourselves from becoming the fool. The first is identity. He's telling us to remember who we are. Financial fears, anxieties, and worries are all eliminated when we remember that God is our Father. Look at how Jesus addresses his disciples, his people. He calls them little flock. Tender, affectionate, loving. He is attempting to reorient their minds on the fact that he cares deeply for them. He is their shepherd, and he is going to lead them to good places. Jesus is saying, remember. Remember who you are. You are my cherished sheep. God is your father. He is a good father. He longs, he desires, and he delights to give you the kingdom. He delights to give us the kingdom. This is our ultimate identity, and as a result, there is no reason to fear. So why is identity such a big deal? I believe it is because our finances so closely to who we are, to our identity. Let me show you how this works. A person who identifies themselves as a hunter, they spend significant monies on camp dues, on camouflage, on boots, on rifles, on crossbows, all of those things. And ooh, I almost forgot about this female deer urine. Who, who's going to pay money for female deer urine? Their heart or her money except a hunter. And not only that, there's expensive things. Four-wheelers. And then, hold on, honey, I need a trailer to haul this four-wheeler in. Oh, oh, and by the way, that car's not going to work. I need a truck to pull the trailer to pull the four-wheeler. See how this goes? Okay. Now, not just to pick on hunters. What about people who identify themselves as fashionistas? Yes, unfortunately, I know what this term means. But a fashionista spends their money on the newest trends. Clothing, boots, shoes, handbags, and accessories. You see... Our monies follow our identity very closely. What we associate ourselves with, you can follow the trail of our resources. Now, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing inherently wrong with hunting or shopping. So some of you are off the hook, okay? There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But they are not our defining identity, All other identities are subject to our Christian identity. You are not a hunter that happens to be a Christian. You are a Christian who enjoys hunting. Now you may say, Jake, you're really splitting hairs here. But I believe that this subtle difference makes a huge impact on the way that we live. Our relationship with Christ must be that which ultimately defines our life and not anything else. 
If we can massage this foundational truth into the core of who we are, it changes everything. We won't be generous just because we're commanded to be generous, because it's a duty for us. We'll be generous because that is who we are. One of the ways that I try to massage my Christian identity into my life is every morning I start my day by reciting a particular gospel-centered passage to myself. There's nothing magical or mystical about this particular verse, but it's one that helps me set my mind and my thoughts on what the day is really about. For me, that's Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, in a, in a very real way, I have been crucified with Christ. In a very real way, the Jake Mason that lived prior to October of 1995 is dead. And now my complete identity is wrapped up or absorbed into my relationship with Christ. Because of the gospel and my faith in it, I am different. And because of that identity, because it is completely absorbed, those two cannot nor should not ever be separated. So what is it that reorients your day? What is it that starts your day by understanding what the day is really about? What massages your Christian identity into your regular pace of living? We need something that sets our day off, that reorients our mind and gives us direction. The second thing I think that Jesus provides for us, his people, is to sell and give. He says to sell your possessions and take those proceeds and give them to the poor, to give alms. I think this flows naturally out of our identity. We sell and give because our Father cares for the poor. And his cares are now my cares. I do not know of a, a better practical antidote for greed than taking something that you cherish, selling it, and giving those proceeds to a person in need. Giving to the poor, I, I believe, is one of life's billboards that reveal who we really are. James tells us, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things he needs for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see, according to James... A faith without giving to a brother in need is a dead faith. This, this point hit me the hardest as I was preparing this sermon over the past couple of weeks. Uh, I became very convicted as I examined my 17 years as a believer and the measly amounts that I had given to the poor. You see, I'm, I'm very faithful to give to the church. But at the same time, I am very unfaithful to give to the poor. And so the conviction was, was pretty heavy. 
And so I started the repentance process. I, I confessed my sin to God and my sin of unbelief, my sin of not trusting him with the resources that he had provided me. And I knew, though, that words of repentance without action is not real repentance. So I called my wife. You see, when you prepare for these sermons, you, you dig into the text and the Spirit convicts you of things. But my wife hasn't been digging into this text, and we're one flesh. I can't, I can't cut that check without her. So I called her, and, you know, it was a part of me that was hoping she'd say, no, you know, ah, I'm good, we're good. Christmas is coming up. We need those things for ourselves. But uh, not my wife. She, uh, she is much more generous than I am. I called her up, and we have this particular resource that, that we could sell, uh, be a sacrifice for her and I. And I said, hey, what do you think about selling this and giving it to the poor? She goes, whatever you think's best. So my wife and I are selling something that for us is a sacrifice, as a, a step of obedience, a fruit of repentance. And we're going to give those proceeds to the poor. You see, Jesus commands us to sell our possessions and give to the needy, not just because it's good for the needy, but because it's best for us. You see, I can't, I can't take that possession with me when I die. That possession that I'm trying to cling to tightly, when I die, it doesn't go with me. But when I release that to God, there are treasures transferred to heaven. He says, I get the kingdom. I get treasures in heaven. And my Father delights to give those to me. So, identity, selling and giving, and then lastly, investing in eternity. Imagine this scenario with me. This week, you call your stockbroker. And you ask him, what stock is guaranteed to tank? Which company with 100% assurance will be bankrupt by the end of the year? And then that stockbroker tells you that company. You say, I tell you what, I want you to invest everything that I have in that soon-to-be-bankrupt company. You'd be a fool. You would, you would never make that phone call. Jesus is giving us the ultimate insider trading tip. That the world's economy is that company. He is telling us, he's warning us that it will be bankrupt. We might not know when, but its future is sure. So this tender shepherd is warning us, is calling us to not be a fool and to transfer true valuables so that they will be safe. He's calling us to be rich towards God. As Randy Alcorn said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we practically send those resources ahead? I think we do that by seeking His kingdom. By placing our resources towards the advancement of His kingdom. The advancement of the gospel. By using our resources to care for others. And in doing so, we transfer 
treasures to heaven and God becomes our riches. The reason this is such a big deal is because our investments reveal our hearts. If we look over our financials, if we look over those bank statements, and we see that most of the resources are devoted to the things and the cares of this world, then we are devoted to this world. If we look over those same financials and we see that they are devoted to the advancement of God's kingdom and towards the care and love of others, then we are devoted to God. Our investments reveal our allegiances. My friends, if I may, little flock of North Wake, I don't think this passage is difficult to grasp intellectually. But I think it is so, so, so difficult to live out on a day-to-day basis. So let's ask ourselves that all-important question. Are your valuables safe? If the things that are truly valuable, if they're in that pocket, they're sure. They are sure. They are safe. They are protected in heaven where no thief can steal and no moth will destroy. So check the pockets of your life and ask yourself these questions. Have you laid up treasures for yourself? Or do your possessions reveal that you truly do value God supremely and love others? Is your identity wrapped up in your union with Christ or is it wrapped up in something worldly? When is the last time you sold something sacrificially to care for someone you knew were in need? Where are your treasures stored? Are they in your bank, that IRA, or that mutual fund? Or are they in heaven? If you're anything like me, as I've already described, this, a passage like this pricks me. It pricks me deep. And it, and it calls me to respond in some way. And I don't know if you're like me, but a lot of times I'm pricked by passages when Larry preaches or Jeff preaches. And something happens from this room to the time I get home. There's maybe what I would describe as conviction amnesia. Okay? I have this great desire to do something. And then by the time I have had lunch... I have forgotten all about it. Let's not do that today. It's it's not my goal to have the front flooded with people. It's my hope that you will respond to God the way He is calling you to respond to this particular passage of Scripture. For some of you, it will be a very tangible expression of coming down front because you struggle with pride. You want to sit there and not let anybody know that You could be the one who struggles with greed. Whatever is most worshipful for you and your family, you need to do that now. Some of you may want to thank God for his financial provision for you and your family. Some of you want to praise him for the opportunities that you've had to help someone else in need. But some of you need to respond in repentance and confession for your self-centeredness and your greediness, just like I had to do this week. So, 
I'm going to pray and the praise team's going to come up. And you respond faithfully to the way that you think is most worshipful for you to respond to God this morning. Let's pray. Father, you are so gracious to us. Lord, we have...